Okay, so if you don't know, last week we started the book of Revelation. And I, I said, hey, we've gotten too cocky as a church. Like we just, to start the book of, Re- like sure, a section in Revelation, great. But we said, hey, we're gonna go through the whole book of Revelation together. And so last week we started the book of Revelation. One note, one of the things I said that would help us is if we dived into some scholarship on Revelation, on some good scholarship on Revelation, okay? And not just YouTube videos that our aunt sends us. And so, uh, so, I would say if you are interested in that, we have a whole bunch of books at the Connect Desk just free for you guys. We ran out of all of them last week. We got 15 more for you guys. And so the book is called Revelation for the Rest of Us. It's by Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett. And I would say this is the most approachable, easy, scholarly book on the book of Revelation that I have found. And so uh, it's a relatively cheap on Kindle if you want to get it on Kindle. Uh, but, and maybe we'll even buy some more if they run out. But if you think that you'll actually read that book, dive deep into the, the scholarship there. And it's a very approachable book, easy to read. I would say go grab that book on your way out because we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help each other understand this very complex, difficult book that has been used in all kinds of ways, Okay. Along with that, here's what I would say. I, don't, I try not to say this a lot because it feels like self-aggrandizing, but go back and listen to the sermon last week. The, it's the intro sermon to the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of answering, answering the question, what is this book? And what is this book trying to do, okay? But we took a whole hour, okay? It was the longest sermon I've ever preached. I won't do that to you again, okay? Well, I can't make any promises, but I'll try not to do that to you guys again. And, and the reason we took an hour is because we just know that Revelation has all sorts of interpretations. It's a really difficult book, and so we had to take some time to stick in, in deeply and stick too deeply what we do know, that what the book of Revelation is and what it's speaking and what it's saying. And so I would say go back listen to that it's on there's a pod we have a podcast there's a uh, it's on our website you can find that I would say it would really help us uh, in understanding the book of Revelation so all that being said let me just give a little brief overview of what we learned last week I'm going to probably do this almost every week and I'm going to do it every week until I stop getting letters in the mail about Revelation and, and all these kinds of things. And so we talked about that last week a little bit. So here's what we learned that the book of Revelation is trying to do. Here's what the book itself is trying to do. It's trying to disciple Christians into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. Okay, so it wants to train Christians to be discerning about Babylon and the way that Babylon has infected our faith and our world. It wants us to be dissident, opposing the ways of Babylon with our very lives. It wants us to live lives all of worship, where all of our life is worship of the Lamb, which is Jesus. And it wants us to be witnesses to Jesus, where it wants to disciple us into being a people that live lives that speak to and witness about Jesus. Just like the, the disciples in Acts were witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth, we are part of that. So we live lives that witness to Jesus, we speak words that witness to Jesus and what we've seen him do through his word and in our lives. And so that's what Revelation is trying to do, disciple Christians into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. That's what it's trying to do, okay? Which we might not expect that because of how Revelation is often carried in our culture. And so here's three other things 
that we learned about the book of Revelation that are so crucial to understand the book of Revelation. We, re- we've, we learned that the book of Revelation actually tells us what sort of genre it is. And if you don't know, the genre really matters when you're reading books of the Bible. If you don't know what a certain genre of book of the Bible is, you might misinterpret it because you might read something that's a metaphor or a poem or hyperbole or whatever and kind of take it a little bit like too literally in one sense because a lot of times uh, the scriptures are using things like metaphors and poems to to tell a very important point. I love uh, a lot of biblical scholars. They say, hey, the way to read the Bible is not literally, it's literarily, okay? You have to know what kind of literature is. To clarify, I think it's God's word. I think the things that happen in it all really happened. But when you get to something like the Psalms that are poems and songs, you have to read them like they're poems and songs. And the same is true for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is these three genres, and it's really important to know these three genres if we're going to really understand what it's saying, okay? And so here's the three genres we learned that the book of Revelation is. We learned that it's apocalypse. We learned the book of Revelation is apocalypse. Right there in verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus, okay? That word in the Greek is apocalypse. At the time they made the English translations, apocalypse wasn't a popular word, so they used this word revelation. We, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think like the end of the earth, the end of times or uh, apocalyptic movie, but in that day, in that place, when they said apocalypse, it referred to a type of teaching. It referred to a type of writing. It, it referred to a, t- a way to talk to people. And so apocalypse is a genre. And what the apocalypse genre does is it takes images, it takes symbols, it even takes numbers and uses them as symbols to speak to things that are not literal things, but true things about society, especially true things about empire-like societies. We talked in depth about that last week. And so we have to know that Revelation is a book that's going to use Jewish imagery. It's going to use Roman imagery to speak things that are not literally happening, but are truly happening in society. We looked at some Banksy artwork last week to show like, hey, it's speaking to true things. Uh, Some authors like to say, this is uh, what things look like from heaven's point of view, from God's point of view. In one sense, it's using these symbols to kind of say something to us, all right? We learned the book, the second genre, is that it's literary prophecy, okay? So literary prophecy uses words and visions from God that challenge the people of God and comfort the people of God, and they're words not to predict history, but to comfort us about the God who is in control of all of history, And he's in control of all of history until he returns. And so a lot of Revelation is these words of comfort and challenge from God. And you'll get these moments where it seems like he's talking about something at the very end of time. It's because God wants to comfort us and let us know that he's in charge of all of history. Okay, so that's the second genre. The third genre we we learned about the book of Revelation is that the, the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It's a circulatory letter that went out to... Uh, seven cities worth of churches, seven whole cities of churches read this book. It was a letter to them. Here's why that's really important. That means that Revelation is not some kind of secret code book Christians were supposed to hold on to until 
it, right now in America, we're like, no, we got it. We figured this out. It means it was a real letter written to real people in a real context. And so these things that are said in Revelation meant something to those first century Christians. It meant something to them. And so for us to understand the book of Revelation well, we don't need to read a newspaper. We need to do some studying on the first century and understand what these images and what these things meant to people of the first century, okay? So that's a little brief synopsis. I'm probably gonna do that almost every week because there's so, much, so many misunderstandings, I think, of the book of Revelation. We often don't even think of those genres when it comes to the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation itself says, hey, I'm this, I'm these three genres, which is immensely helpful in us understanding the book of Revelation. So again, go back, listen to last week's sermon if you wanna kind of dive more deeply into that. Grab one of the books from the Connect Desk. It is really important to know its genres and know what Revelation is trying to do in order to understand it well. So if you listen to any sermon in the series, listen to that first one. So uh, today, the passage that we're gonna be in, the verses that we're gonna be in in chapter one, we're gonna watch how Revelation wants to disciple us specifically into being worshipers of Jesus. The book today is going to attempt to disciple us into being worshipers of Jesus. But before we get there, a quick story about when I was a youth pastor. So I start, when I first started doing ministry, like it was volunteer ministry, and a lot of it was with like kids and, uh, or, or teens. And so I did a lot of kids ministry, youth ministry. And then I, I really got in deep with youth ministry. And I, I love youth ministry. In fact, there's just something about the ethos of a youth pastor that's just like who I am. Like you're, and you guys probably like, I know, we can tell. And so there's just so, like, I, sometimes I even say to people like, hey, I'm still a youth pastor. I just happen to be a lead pastor, right? Like even though I don't have a youth group or anything anymore. And so, uh, the, so this story that I'm about to tell involves a youth group that I was part of, and I, I partially almost hesitate to tell the story because I, I, maybe I could come out looking the hero, and so if just know I, I'm not the hero in the story. I was probably angsty and arrogant and not full of the fruit of the Spirit in this moment, but here's what happened. We, we had a Wednesday night youth group that had worship and singing and then a message, and the senior pastors of the church that I was part of at that time, they would both come in, and they would uh, kind of begin to help us with different things. And some of the things they started to do would start to irk me a little bit. And so one pastor, and, and to be clear, she's a godly, great woman and a great pastor, but she would see these teens that were in her church, and in worship, and at least in that youth group, the teens were very, it was like they were dead, right? Like they're, they're not worshiping, they're not, they're, there's no passion in them. And, but it was this great free space for them to just be themselves, right? Well, the, one of the senior pastors, she, she would come in and she would see that they're not clapping and she would just be like, walk up to the teens and be like, come on, clap, right? Like she would like walk up into their row and be like, I see you not clapping, this is what we do here, okay? And, you know, this just irked me for a variety of reasons. One was probably because I grew up in the church and I'm like, you're not going to tell me what to do. And so uh, this irked me. And, and so I even, you know, after the service, I pulled her aside and we began to talk through why that irked me. And, and reflecting back on that moment and, and why it irked me, I think ultimately the reason that, that, it, that it irked me is because I think that someone will only find Jesus worthy to be worshipped when, they, when they've seen his beauty. 
And so to simply kind of go up to the kids and be like, the way to worship Jesus is to make sure you're doing this physical motion. And part of me as a youth pastor was going, no, our job is to help them see that Jesus is beautiful. And if we help them to see that Jesus is beautiful, then they'll clap or worship God in whatever way that makes sense with who they are as a person. And so, and so that was kind of the conversation we had. I just, uh, there's something in me that thinks you can't really force someone to love Jesus, to revere Jesus, until you've seen his power, until you've seen his majesty. Really, I, I think it doesn't happen until God does something to help you see his beauty and his majesty and his power. Now, here's what the verses of Revelation that we're in today are trying to do. They're trying to help us see the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus. And if we could just get a glimpse of that in our head, then I think we become worshipers. When we could see this and go, this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. This is what can stir our hearts to worship God. Not me walking in all the rows, making sure you clap. We have to see Jesus as a beauty in order to become worshipers of Jesus. And to me, Revelation chapter 1 is trying to help us see Jesus' beauty so we become worshipers of Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to see four things about Jesus. We're going to read a lot of Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. Then we're going to hop down. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. And then the, the four things that we'll see about Jesus that we'll pull from this chapter and talk about are we're going to see that Jesus walks among us. We're going to see that Jesus is powerful. We're going to see that Jesus is gentle. And we're going to see that Jesus is a priest maker. Okay? So let's get into it. We're going to read a large chunk right here, 4 through 8, then 12 through 20. And here's what I want you guys to do, especially in verses 12 through 20. I want you to imagine what I'm reading. Okay, some people, I found out recently, some people don't visualize everything like about their lives. They just think in like words or something. I don't know. But I want you to visualize. I want you to imagine what you're reading. This is part of apocalyptic. This is part of the apocalypse genre of scripture. It wants to put these images in your brain like a piece of artwork and let your imagination kind of stir some things in you. So as I read 12 through 20 especially, I want you to actually imagine these things. Or if you're just listening to me, imagine what I'm saying in your head, okay? That's part of the work that Revelation is trying to do, okay? So verse 4, let's start in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's hop down to verse 12. In verses 9 through 11, John says, hey, I'm writing this from Patmos to these seven churches. And then verse 12 says this, then I turned 
to see the voice. So John said on Patmos, he's seen these visions. Here's, here's one of the visions he sees. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. Let those images sit in your brain while I take a drink. Okay, a quick note about God before we kind of get into the, the four things we see about Jesus. And you're going to see me take probably a lot of asides in this series where it's like I couldn't fit, uh, figure out where to fit this in the sermon. And, and that's because Revelation is a hard book. And so here's something we have to know about God. A lot of times God and Jesus and even the Spirit, the, the terms that are used for them are used interchangeably. Like you see this especially with God and Jesus. Often it says it uses the word God and Jesus and it will call both Alpha and Omega. What you're seeing in the book of Revelation is, is the Trinity. You're seeing Trinitarian theology kind of lived out, like lived out. Honestly, the book of Revelation is probably one of the, the books that give, give us the riches of the Trinity, Trinity most, strong, most strongly. Okay, so when you're, hey, why do we believe this doctrine? A lot of it comes from Revelation. It's from all over the Bible, but a lot of it comes from Revelation. And so you're going to see God, a term used for God, and then you're going to see at times a term used for Jesus. And so I just want you to know, when I'm preaching it, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to interchangeably use these terms. What we believe about the Trinity is, the Trinity means that God is one, but he's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I can't explain how it works. No one can, okay? And I, I'm going to ask God. I'm like, hey, why did you do this? And so, and he would probably, because this is, I am, Anthony, be quiet. And so, like, this is who I am. And so, uh, so, anyways, and then a little note about those seven spirits in front of the th- throne. This kind of throws us out, off, freaks us out, especially when we realize that these seven spirits are, are, are the spirit of God, which means the seven spirits is or are the Holy Spirit, We have to remember, again, this is apocalypse. Back then, they used numbers like adjectives. They used numbers like symbols. Sure, they they had statistics, and they used numbers like we use numbers in different ways, too. But for them, numbers had a lot of meaning, a lot of symbolism behind them. Just like for us, seven, you could say lucky number seven or unlucky 13. It was even much more powerful in that society, especially for a Jewish Christian to use numbers in different ways. So when we see seven spirits, don't think so much plural spirits. Think Really, what the author is trying to say, the wholeness of the Holy Spirit. 
the perfect and complete Holy Spirit, the perfect Spirit of God, the complete Spirit of God. Seven, for the, this Jewish Christian author, John, meant perfect and complete. So it's really saying the fullness of the Spirit going to the fullness of the churches is kind of what's going on there. So God does not have seven spirits. We don't believe in like a nine-inity or something like that. Like there's just one Holy Spirit of God, but the Revelation uses seven like an adjective, all right? So, all right, let's look at these four things that we, that we see about Jesus in this text. The first thing is this. The first thing we see about Jesus is Jesus walks among us. So in the, in the passage that we read, we're supposed to imagine these like seven lampstands, but not like our lamps, like ancient lampstands. Funny enough, ancient lampstands kind of look like tall lamps that we have today. So they're kind of like tall metal pole with feet at the bottom with kind of a plate at the top, okay? And then their lamps, I don't know if you know this, they did not have electricity back then. So their lamps, their lamps, I found that out recently. And so their lamps, their lamps uh, look differently. So easy, just imagine the, the lamp from Aladdin, uh, the movie Aladdin, okay? If you've seen the genie's lamp, you've seen these lamps, okay? They, some kind of, I don't know how it worked, like oil with a string and they light the, I don't, I don't know. But so they would have these lamps, so they have these lamps, kind of, that's the imagery, these tall lamps with these, or these tall lampstands with these lamps on them. And what we see is that these lampstands represent the seven churches, the seven cities worth of churches, that John is writing to. And then the image we're given is Jesus, one like the Son of Man. That's the term that Jesus most used to refer to himself. It's from the book of Daniel. And he is standing among these seven lampstands. And here's, here's something else that's beautiful about Jesus standing amongst these seven lampstands to me is that, that the, the idea of Jesus standing among the seven lampstands, it surely meant those seven cities worth of churches. But we have to remember this seven has this dual meaning. It means like perfect and complete. And so this seven means like, and, and because this made it into God's word and because of how God's people used this in that day and passed it around to even churches outside of those cities, what we can realize is God is standing not just in the midst of those seven churches. He's standing in the midst of every church in every place and every time. He's standing in the midst of all his churches. Jesus somehow, some way, walks among us. Jesus is standing here among us. This is what Jesus does. Our, our, our first kind of visualization of Jesus in the book of Revelation is Jesus standing here with us. Jesus is not far from the church. He's standing in the midst of the church. Guys, for me, this is the best part of Christianity. God is here with us. Jesus is here with us. He's here in some way, walking among us. We have access to God because God himself stands among us, walks among us. I know at times it doesn't seem like that. At times it doesn't feel like that. But Revelation wants you to know that's what's true. God is here standing among us. When we gather, he's here standing among us in revelation how it wants to disciple us as worshipers that know that jesus is here with us is it wants that image in your brain he's standing here 
So, so if you're the kind of person, maybe like me, who, who forgets that, who doesn't believe it all the time, let this image get seared in your brain. Begin to imagine like Jesus like standing here, sitting in the row with us. He's amening me. Like this is, a, like, this is crazy. <laughs> You didn't hear that, but like this is like this is what we're supposed to. This is what Revelation is supposed to do, and this is what makes us uh, worshipers of Jesus in some way, somehow. God, God Himself, part of the work of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection was now He stands here among us. That's beautiful. All right, let's look at the next thing we we see about Jesus in this. Jesus is powerful. We see a powerful Jesus described in verses 12 through 20. I'm just going to tell you what my brain does when I read 12 through 20. I imagine kind of like a giant space Jesus, okay? <laughs> I really do. I imagine Jesus, I imagine this lampstands in space, like giant lampstands, and I imagine Jesus as a giant. And part of why I imagine a giant space Jesus is because he's holding seven stars, okay? Those stars are big. And so he's holding these seven stars. He's this giant space Jesus. But then I imagine he does not look like the Jesus I imagine when I'm reading the Gospels. Like he is basically like on white fire is kind of how I imagine him, right? He's got his you know, classic Jesus wear with a golden sash. I'm kind of imagining that, but more I'm imagining his face. Like his hair is kind of like a flame of white wool. His eyes are like kind of a little bit brighter, burning fire. His feet are bronze. And I'm just imagining this giant space. If you want a really kind of niche, niche or uh, like how I imagine it, only like 35-year-old nerdy millennials, I imagine kind of like a super saiyan Jesus here. Like he's just standing in the midst of the, in space. And so this is how I imagine Jesus. And remember, Revelation wants you to use your imagination. So it's good for us to imagine Jesus this way. And if I really imagine him and I really kind of see him as this giant space Jesus holding these seven stars just on fire, basically, because of how glorious he is, I go, that guy is powerful. No wonder earlier in the book, earlier in the chapter, it says that he liberated humanity. Of course that powerful Jesus can liberate humanity. No wonder he can free whole peoples. No wonder his blood is powerful enough to slay the force of evil and sin and be our atonement. And so Jesus is so powerful in this vision that when John gets the vision and he sees Jesus, he falls down at Jesus' feet. This is how powerful Jesus is in this vision for John. He can't just look at him. He falls down before him. Now, listen, this is apocalypse. So I don't think Jesus literally looks like this. But what the author is trying to do is say, if you could see a glimpse of Jesus' power, this is what it would look like. If you could see the kind of power he has, the kind of power he holds, this is what he would begin to look like for you. And so we have a Jesus who's this powerful, that Middle Eastern man who's probably shorter than all of us is this powerful is as powerful as this imagery says. Jesus is powerful enough to hold stars. 
He's powerful enough to liberate the world. He's powerful enough to shed his blood and come back to life. He's powerful enough that he has no end. He's powerful enough that in one sense he's blinding to look at. He's powerful enough that he holds death and life in his hands. The Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of Revelation is far more powerful than we realize at times. When we think of Jesus, we often don't think of power. But he is. He's full of power. Revelation wants this this imagery to get in our heads so we realize Jesus is powerful. And that it is good for us to realize Jesus is powerful because sin and Satan are powerful enemies, so we need a powerful God to defeat those powerful enemies. The Jesus of Revelation is powerful. That's the second thing we see. We also see, though, that he's also gentle. He's also gentle. Let me reread verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus, although he is the holder of all power in the universe, and John is rightfully falling before that, stoops down low puts his hand on John and says, fear not. He's powerful, but he's gentle. He's gentle, and he stoops down low. He's like literally lowly, putting a hand on the shoulder of someone who's just in fear. I imagine what John was feeling was kind of like what you feel when you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? Especially if you got kids who are right by you on the edge. Like, you just know the power of, of, of the of big giant hole. Like, you just know that. I imagine John's feeling that times a thousand when he's before the powerful Jesus. And yet that Jesus stoops down low, puts his right hand on John. One of the things I love about the Gospels is you often see Jesus using his hands, you often see Jesus laying his hands on somebody or something. And a lot of the times, you just get this sense that Jesus is gentle. You get the sense of someone who's just gently putting his hand on somebody. And so this image that, that, that Revelation is repeating is an image we've seen. Like we were in the Gospel of John. We were in the Gospel of John. We saw this. Jesus, although powerful, he is gentle at the same time, he doesn't want John's fear and awe to consume himself. One thing I kept thinking as I, as I studied this passage in particular, one thing I kept thinking is, isn't it good that Jesus is the one with all this power? I kept thinking that. I'm like, man, isn't it good that Jesus is the one that holds all this power? The gentle, lovely, lowly Jesus, the one that we saw in the Gospel of John, like we ended that series a year or so ago. Like we saw in the Gospel of John, Jesus is someone who moves towards the unwanted people of society. He's not afraid to stand with them, and he even gets scorn from others in society for standing with them. Jesus, he heals by touch, a lot of times making himself unclean in that religious system of that day. He feeds people that are hungry. He gets down low to wash the disciples' feet. He even washes Judas' feet. He answers Pilate's harsh, sarcastic questions with genuine and sincere answers that cut through the heart of Pilate. 
on the cross, Jesus cries out for, for John to come over. And, and he says, John, you got to take care of my mom now. You have to be her son. You have to make sure she's all right. That is the Jesus that holds all the power in the universe. That gentle, lovely, kindly Jesus is the one that holds all the power. Isn't it good that Jesus holds all that power? There's no one I would rather have holding all the power of the universe than Jesus. Because he's gentle and he's good. He's gentle enough that even while wielding that power, he can gently lay a hand on the shoulder. The power is not too much for him. That's how powerful he is. Okay, last thing. Last thing that we see about Jesus in this passage is the powerful, gentle, loving Jesus has made us priests. Jesus is a priest maker. Now priests in the Jewish faith and many other religions of that day and even this day, they, they, they were the gatekeepers to God. Like for the Jewish people, they thought the priests, they thought of them as the mediators between God and them. Like you needed a priest to get to God. You needed a priest to get God's forgiveness. And what we see in, the, in verse, I believe it was four, but in, in that four through eight section, what we see is what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection is made everybody that trusts in his blood a priest. He's a priest maker. Jesus' death on the cross has overthrown the old priest system where you needed a priest to get to God. In some way, Jesus' blood act as this sacrifice. These priests would do these sacrifices in order to get to God and to get his forgiveness. Jesus' blood was the blood once and for all. You never need a sacrifice again. In fact, it's so powerful, it makes anyone that trusts in Jesus a priest. Everybody has access to God now. Jesus is a priest maker. He's made it so you and I can approach him without ever having to don on some sort of special religious priesthood. This is part of why we say all of life is all for Jesus. There's nothing particularly special about me why I'm up here. We're all priests. We all have access to God. So here's what that means for us. If, we're, if we that trust in Jesus, that trust in his blood, if we are priests, if Jesus has made us priests, that means that the powerful Jesus that you guys saw today, that you see in chapter one of Revelation, that powerful Jesus, we as priests are the people that go out and let the whole world know about that powerful Jesus. We help the whole world see that powerful Jesus. And when they see it and recognize it, they become priests with us. That means that gentle and lovely and kind Jesus that we saw today, we are the priests that help the world see that Jesus. We are the priests that lay our metaphorical hands on their metaphorical shoulders and sometimes literal hands on their literal shoulders to let them see and know that God is a God that is gentle and good and kind. That's, that's part of our job. That's like part of our identity now as Christians. We let people know, because we're priests, we let people know that the God of Christianity, the God of the universe really, he does not have to be feared because of what the powerful Jesus has done and how close he is to us. 
So priests, are, they're no longer a special class of citizens. The powerful and gentle Jesus has made all of us priests because he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He really was the priesthood to end all priesthoods or to really uh, ignite a new priesthood. Let's take that identity seriously. Because as priests, we now are holders and givers of the beauty of Jesus to this world. We're witnesses to it. That's why we have to take it seriously. We help people see the beauty of Jesus. So, church, Revelation today, it wants us to marvel at Jesus, see his majesty, see his power, see his gentleness, see that he is lovely and see that he is worthy to be worshipped and that that would fuel us, that that would make us disciples of Jesus that are worshippers of Jesus. So church, may we see his power, may we see his love, may we see his gentleness, and may we live as his priests. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this just powerful imagery that you've given us in, in Revelation chapter 1 of who you are and your power and, and, and just so much of your beauty, God. I really do pray, God, I pray that, that something happened this morning through reading this word where our hearts are stirred to see your beauty, that we want to worship you, that we're discipled into worshipers of you. Maybe, God, for some of us, it's the first time we've even considered worshiping you, God. But maybe, God, there's some of us that need to be refreshed by that, to remember that. Holy Spirit, you know what you want to do in here. Do it in our hearts. We need you to. We need your work. I cannot, my words fail in convincing everybody that you're beautiful. Help us to see that you're beautiful. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.